On this episode of the Diaspora Entrepreneurs Podcast, I have an amazing guest. Trust me, you will want to hear this conversation. We spoke about how he tried to open an high street bank in the UK, which belongs to the old guards. So, yeah, let's hear his amazing journey, his experience, and, um, and what it's up to. Hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another wonderful episode of the Diaspora Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Osio. Today we have an amazing guest who's been very, very busy. He has a long, a long list of accomplishments, which is going to be a mouthful. But he is the founder of My Black Market. How are you? I'm well, thank you very much. How are you? Yes, I'm good. I'm good. You've been busy, man. For the past how many years you've been like, come on. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I don't know. What would you want to know? What about me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, some time ago, Channel 4 says that you are um, an expert voice in the black community. Yeah. Yeah. You You were an ambassador for the enterprise um, Enterprise UK, mm-hmm. yeah. So and the list goes on, and yeah, you have an extensive background in traveling as a business and personal development speaker, coach to law, finance, media, marketing, and sales. You're a best-selling author. Co- you're a best-selling author, co-author, multiple streams of inspiration um, with Les Brown. So, oh, how has working with Les Brown? Let's start from there. Les Brown was good. I mean, at the time, I was very heavily into the personal development industry. So um, at the time, he, I mean, he still comes over, but I think he was coming over a bit more regularly at at the time. So he used to kind of come back and forth and um, he used to speak. He actually had, um, what do you call it, like what he called his mentee, um, a a person by the name of Johnny Wimbry. So Johnny Wimbry was kind of the initial one that I kind of, knew and kind of was making contact with. Um, also a very, very good speaker, Johnny Wimbry. Um, and then through that, I think just being in that kind of environment around that, then kind of Les Brown started coming around and things like that. So, um, I mean, not Les Brown. Les Brown is a, is, a, is a fantastic speaker, very entertaining. And he's been in that for years. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was very good. I mean, I learned a lot at that time about um, speaking and you know, different elements of, of speakers. So between the two of them, Johnny Wimbry and Les Brown, um, yeah, very good speakers. And they say, like, Les Brown is, I think, the number one black speaker in the world. I think he's number, he's top five um, speakers um, in the world. But he's probably higher than that now because I know a few of the speakers that were in that top five have since passed on. So, um, yeah, I love, I love Les Brown. Yeah, but I love a lot of respect for what he does. He's one. He's 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 one of the best who've ever done it, and um, I really like I really like his his style. Yeah. I like the way he like entertains and talks about his own vulnerabilities and yeah. how he failed in the past, how he surmounted them. I really really like his um, his style. You don't really see um, you don't really see that these days when it comes to people who are involved in personal development talking about their their vulnerabilities and their failures, how they really messed up. But 
everyone loves Les, Les Brown. Everyone loves I Les Brown. I think it's interesting in what you're saying because the, the personal development industry is very interesting because personal development is also tied in very closely with things like sales and marketing. Yeah. So I think it's, it's, it's interesting to get the balance of your own personal vulnerabilities of who you are as a person, but also still present an image in order to do your sales and marketing, you know, you know you, what you're presenting and what you're putting forward in your courses and things like that. It's also very interesting as well. Now that we're in the social media age, it's kind of like with Instagram, everybody's showing their perfect life. Mm-hmm. Everybody's pretending to be, yeah, I have no problems. Every day is fantastic. Every day I'm living my best life and everything. And I'm taking pictures here and there and everything. And it's like, yeah. kind of like we're kind of moving to an era and age where everything kind of is very false and very much a projected image. Um, we're not really being who we are, which is very interesting when you kind of get situations like George Floyd, because it's very much of a contrast mm-hmm. of everybody's potential of a fantastic life, but then you actually see the reality of life on video. So it's very interesting, yeah. Yeah, that is, that is good to know. See, recently, um, you, were, you were elected as an official of the Entrepreneurship Career Center. Yeah. And you, like, liaise with, you guys, you work with African diplomats and... Um, President, ambassadors, high commissioners, you know? So for the African diaspora, and I am a diaspora, and I am a huge fan of Africa, even though I'm from there, but I'm still, there's a difference between um, a huge fan of Africa and coming from Africa. Yeah. So, but I am a, a huge fan of Africa, so let me just put it out there so you know. Yeah. So, how do you guys what, work what, with... What, what part of Africa are you from? Are you, oh, are you I'm, from? I'm from Nigeria. Okay. Ah. <laughs> yeah, Nigeria. <laughs> what about you? What part of... If it's... The, um, yeah, where, where are you from? Well, I have a very diverse heritage. So, um, I'm partially English. Mm-hmm. Um, I will probably say I most identify with being Jamaican as my mother's from there, my family's side from there. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have Guyanese in my heritage and I also have Ghanaian in my heritage. So I have a bit of a combination of, of, of multiple different things, yeah. Okay. So you know, you know Jamaica is the 55th nation of Africa, you know that? I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. There's yeah. a lot of connections and ties yeah. and, you know, I know because... Jamaica... A lot of Jamaicans do like when you go to the, uh, speak about Jamaica. They always speak heavily, like and highly favorably about Africa and mm-hmm. a lot of like the cultural things of Africa. And to me, as I said, we're as you said, this this is the diaspora podcast. So we're all di- we're all Africans anyway. We're just yeah. at different places at different times, you know. So I do know, like um, in Africa, I mean in Jamaica, there's a lot of like heavily references in terms of names and certain things culturally that kind of really traces back to Africa a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you know, there's something that we spoke about earlier about vulnerabilities, failures and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. You are so brave. What gave you the audacity to want to open your own black bank? Um, It's kind (laughs) of a a long story and a long trail. So, um, as you mentioned before, I have a long kind of diverse uh, background in various different, you know, industries and areas. 
So at the time, I was doing a lot around business. And um, what, you know, we know how we always have these kind of financial fluctuations. You know, the UK just announced today that we're going through a massive recession, which everybody expected. Um, so as I'm going around doing like uh, personal development speaking and business development speaking, uh, a lot of times when these fluctuations happen, people want to know within business, you know, they want to understand about how, what causes these fluctuations and what happens and things like that. Um, so at the time, I kind of was forced to heavily get into the financial industry and understanding, you know, what causes these fluctuations and what is the market and what is money and things like that. And when you start to understand or you start to dive into the industry, you start to think about what is money. You start to understand that law is what creates money. But it's the law that tells you, okay, this is money, this is currency, et cetera, et cetera. So the two industries are very much interlinked, which is law and finance. So at the time, I was very heavily into law. Um, and I was studying a lot around like commercial law and learning about financial instruments and even creating my own financial instruments and different things around that time. And um, what I noticed was these sort of institutions are very heavily guarded and very heavily locked down. So what had happened was I had a financial instrument at the time uh, that was worth a lot of money. And for some reason, they just wouldn't let me monetize it, which is very interesting. So I went through all the proper channels and all the proper routes. And it was almost like a club where they would lock you out of trying to, you know, pro progress or, you know, get further into it. It was kind of really interesting. I never forget that um, I was having a, you know, there's a lot of, offshore havens and different things that a lot of these companies use um, and I remember having a trying to have a conversation with uh, I think they were like a solicitors or a legal firm in the Cayman Islands and um, even when I kind of phoned up to, to speak to them they had this very much kind of scared attitude towards uh, just even having a normal conversation just talking just asking normal conversation and it's almost like if you're not part of the club, you can't, they won't kind of let you get in, they won't talk to you, they won't kind of give you the kind of information and different things. So I was kind of looking at various different avenues and angles and institutions and how to, you know, kind of progress more in the financial side of things. And I noticed it's a very kind of, as I said, guarded and heavily locked down type of thing. So at that point, I was like, well, let us start our own financial institutions. Um, if we're not part of the old the, the good boys club or we're not in the circle mm -hmm. and you know the old we, boys we, club yeah if we're not into that which was very interesting um yeah i would say it was very interesting i said because um when i did start to go on the journey of trying to start um the black home bank um, at the time everything was kind of communicated by email so at the time they didn't really know that i was a young black man trying to set up a bank and my name is not, you can't really tell from my name. My name is Daniel Lister. So it doesn't really infer my kind of heritage or my race or anything along those lines. If they see, if they, if they see my name, if they see my Nigerian name, they'll be like, whoa. Yeah, they're not sure. Who is that? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. what was interesting, I was trying, I was meeting with a lot of these different companies. And um, I remember distinctly one in, 
because they didn't know, they invited me to some private members club. It was like this kind of, you know, old boys, private members club. And on the phone, they, I mean, on the email, they don't know, yeah, come down to the club and whatnot. So I go down to the club for the meeting. And then it's only when I get there, they're shocked. Like, oh, we didn't realize it was who it was that we were speaking to. Um, so it was very interesting. So even talking about it being like an old boys club, as we're kind of walking through this um, massive building and we're kind of making our way to the kind of meeting place, as I'm going through, I'm noticing we're passing various different rooms within this whole massive building and clubs. And all I can see is like circles of old white men meeting and talking. I don't know what they were talking about. I didn't get a chance to kind of hear what they were talking about. But it was just room after room after room of these old white men um, listening to, uh, whistling and talking about whatever they were talking about. And it was, yeah, it was very interesting to find like, this is the club and this is the circle and these are the type of people that are kind of clicked in or in that circle when it comes to dealing with banking and finance and things like that. So, um, so yeah, it was very interesting to kind of go through that whole process and kind of be a really a fish out of water when it comes to those type of industries and trying to set things up. So um, yeah, it's very much an, an old boys club. Did you, did you, well, see, let me just ask this. What was the name that was going through your mind? The name of the band that was going through your mind? So at the time, it's very interesting. So the whole banking, what, what is interesting is when I went through trying to do it, there's a whole, there's a lot of secrecy around the industry. So even, so what would happen is a lot of these major financial institutions or people who are very rich and have a lot of money, and they won't want people to know that they're behind certain movements or behind certain organizations and certain things like that. So what they typically do, they will often employ someone or hire someone to kind of do all the investigations in order to set up for them on their behalf. So when I'm going through as a young black man, I think the whole thing in their head was I was maybe working on behalf of somebody else. So even the names of who you're, you're claiming to represent, oftentimes they're not the name of the bank and they're often not the name of the organization. So it could be a, a case of where you just fabricate a name just for the purposes of taking meetings and getting all the information and put everything together. So at the time, <laughs> knowing the industry that I was kind of going into, I think I set up a few different companies. One of them, I remember picking a Latin name to make it sound really kind of, you know, fancy in that kind of arena. Um, so I think I had a Latin name of a bank. Um, I even think I had like an organization that was kind of named after my surname at the time as well. So um, I used various different names in, in that kind of uh, uh, industry. But um, at the time, yeah, as I said, it's, it's a type of thing where until you kind of get to the end, you don't really reveal who it is or what you are and what you're exactly doing. So, you know, at the time, the kind of name of the bank wasn't too important. But, um, yeah, it, it's very interesting um, in terms of, especially you know, if you came out and said, yeah, I'm doing a black bank and this is going to be the name of the black bank. And, you know, you probably would raise a few flags and have a lot of red tape and a lot of people looking very curiously at you. So you have to kind of tread very carefully when you're 
moving in those type of arenas and, and doing things that we're trying to do. Well, take, take, see, that, so that happened a few years ago. Now, if you want to do that again, what steps would you take? Well, it's, it's interesting because the financial industry has progressed quite a lot since that time. So now we're looking at, there's been a major rise in what they call fintech or financial technology. And now you're starting to see a lot of banks that are operating solely off of the mobile phone or solely off of you know, applications or different things along those nature. So the idea of having, having to have a brick and mortar bank on the high street is very kind of different. So even when I was um, going through trying to set up the bank, the reason why banking applications are so extensive is because there's so many different areas and avenues that you have to cover. So you have to, not only talking about like the financial things and what you're going to do financially, you're also talking about you know, risk management and risk mitigation, um, talking about how you're going to protect if, you know, if there's an earthquake or if there's a hurricane or if you get fraud or if you get all of these things you have to think about. Then you've got to think about things in terms of security. So even when you're starting a bank, you can't just have any building. You have to have a specific type of building that is very secure in a certain type of way. You also have to have a specific internet line. You have to get a specific internet line put in by the internet providing company. You can't just operate off of a normal internet provider. You have to get a very secure and technical line. So there's a lot of areas and things that you have to think about. You have to think about personnel. Um, does these, do these personnel have um, experience in the industry? They had previous jobs doing different things in various different um, areas of banking or finance. You have to find and seek out specific people. And all these things have to be approved when you're kind of going through the application. So um, it's very interesting, like, how the old model is versus now. Now we're having various banks pop up, places like Monzo, Starling, um, and there's quite a few of them that are popping up. So the whole kind of financial side of things has evolved quite a bit now to where the point where I don't know if you would necessarily look at doing the same old school type of brick and mortar type of bank. But um, we probably look more towards doing a fintech type of bank. But um, what is very interesting, as I said, because the financial industry has, has evolved quite more, uh, quite a lot now, there are other areas. And apart from fintech, you're looking at things like cryptocurrency, which is now a viable option. Um, there are areas like such as you know token systems, where people have like things like the Black Pound, the Brighton Pound. So there's various different things, different avenues that you can kind of go down that have evolved since the time of me trying to set up a traditional bank. Because the, the, the options now the options now are so massive and I think the, the playing mm. field or the barrier to entry now is coming down. Mm. So it's no longer and you see the high street banks now closing up shop mm. almost like almost every month because mm. of um, the migration to fin to fintech. So and the Monzo and the other Banks, the sterling deal with the ones that happens on your apps now. They now like they are more convenient, easy to open, and that might give that might give um, the aspirants um, a clear shot of having a bank of their own or multiple banks that can serve mm-hmm. different purposes. I think it's very interesting, especially you know when we're talking about Africa and the issues around people being non-banked. And, you know, the way the, the monetary system is controlled, where you can't really transfer money or move money around freely amongst the people. Um, there's a lot of initiatives that are starting up where people are looking at creating alternatives for us as a people, 
where we can freely trade and exchange by ourselves and with ourselves um, without outside forces kind of breaking up and interfering that. Um, and the whole thing now, as I said, with a lot of us having phones and having access to the phones, it's a lot easier for especially people that live in rural areas mm-hmm. not being able to get to banks and get back and forth. But having it on the phone makes everything a lot more accessible. Yeah, yeah. And it's been ruled out. So some see something like Kumpasa now from Kenya. Mm-hmm. Being like on the cutting edge, we have Peja, Ipaga from Nigeria. Yeah. There's so many, there's so many. And, 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 and Peso or something like that, yeah. Yeah. yeah you know you know we we in the in the diaspora i live in london so we in the diaspora needs to be like we need to identify or start creating because this is a this is a challenge for us to start mm-hmm. um, i know you're a pioneer of my black market so this is a challenge for us to like um the fintech guys in our community should start thinking about how to like create one of these platforms for us mm-hmm. so that we know that this is this is our bank or this bank caters also so and so industry in our market or in our community. This platform caters to this, this platform caters to that. So I think it will be very, very encouraging. That is why I said, let me just hear your journey, how you, how you went in the brick and mortar route, which is kind of interesting. I can just imagine, I can just imagine you walking in those halls, um, passing rooms, the rooms, and seeing, it's just like one of the, one of those James Bond movies. <laughs> Sorry, I missed you. you. froze up a little bit. Say that again. Oh, I said I can just imagine you walking in those rooms, going yeah. uh, in those hallways, going past those um, the white guys, and <laughs> just like those James Bond movies. Mm. I mean, I've had it was interesting. I said there was even another incident that I, I had many different meetings with various different uh, financial companies because when you're talking about setting up a bank, there's many aspects to it. So. It's not only the whole kind of setting up a bank and the financial and regulation side of things, but you're also talking about who's going to do your uh, banking software. So you've got to meet with banking software companies that will set up all of the banking software. You've also got to meet with, um, you know, financial, what you call like manufacturing companies. So for instance, people that do card manufacturing who print your debit cards or your credit cards or whatever you're producing. So there's a lot of... Uh, meetings around that. There's also, you've got to meet with people like Visa and MasterCard because you've got to use their payment networks in order for you to um, send money out through your bank. Um, and I remember one uh, meeting that I had was very weird. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was just like a completely different culture or nature or different things like that. But um, I definitely had a meeting where some of the people seemed like James Bond villains. And I was kind of in the, mo- the room, kind of discussing with them and talking with them and the kind of whole energy and the vibe and all of it was very different. I mean, you can definitely tell the type of people that the industry is controlled by and the type of culture that it's controlled by. So when you're an outsider, someone not from that background and someone that's not from that culture, you kind of definitely do feel that you're up against the odds when you're meeting these type of people. Wow. That must have been that must have been a great experience. That must have been a great experience meeting different types of energy. And what was your was that the weirdest meeting you attended? Yeah, there was a one guy. What's what's what is interesting about being in those circles is you. What's good about it is you do get a lot of information because a lot of these people are people who set up banks and financial institutions and 
they give you the kind of backstory to this institution or this is what happened this institution nearly went out of money this is how this started this is how so you get a lot of insight into what's going on but one of the weirdest ones i had i had uh people coming from over from europe to come and meet me so these are kind of heads of um one of the banking um companies and it was just very weird in which I, I would describe it like there was there was two of them that came over. One of them was okay, but one of them was very almost autonomous or robotic. There was almost like a soulless feeling to them when I was talking to them. It was just like such a disconnect and just the way they talked and the way they carried themselves and the way they acted and it was weird. It was almost I don't know how to explain it. The kind of I don't know if it was just such a cultural disconnect that we didn't kind of resonate with each other, but it was a very kind of surreal type of meeting when I when I met this person. It was, it was I don't know what they were doing or what they were into or what they were up to outside of what they were working with, but um, that person was kind of really weird. And what's interesting, even in the meeting, it was almost like what we were saying to each other was translated through the two other people that were with us. So the person that I kind of was initially meeting with that brought these two people over. And then obviously there was one of the guys that they were meeting with that was okay. So it was almost like what I was saying was translated to the guy that I came with, was in there with, translated to one guy and then explained to the other guy. And then the other guy would translate it kind of back to both of us. And it's not like we were speaking different languages, but it was just kind of almost the way that he was communicating and putting himself across it was just kind of sort of like a disconnect or I don't know, it was a, it was a very strange and surreal experience. But um, yeah, it's very interesting in terms, in terms of that. Um, in terms of the financial industry of things, the meetings themselves are, are very interesting because the whole industry is very secretive and very locked down. So even like, so I even had meetings with like private banks and private banks are like, banks where you don't even know they exist you don't even know that they are banks um and like unless you're introduced by someone or you know somebody tells you about them you don't know anything about them so even if you phone up and you say yeah i want to speak to somebody about an account who do you want to speak to um there's nobody i know i just try to inquire about trying to get an account with this bank well sorry unless you have a name we can't help you okay put your phone down you can't go there you can't turn up you can't phone you can't there's like it's so guarded in how you get to these places. So I remember one time I went to this private bank. You wouldn't even know it was a bank. It's just like a big, massive, like entrance hall, marble floors, um, floor to ceiling, um, glass panels and windows. You go in that massive, like marble, like, like you know, one of those places where the entrance is so big, you can have another office just in the reception area itself because it's just big and empty one area just a, a reception desk the other area is just like a waste area and the rest is just marble space like a mansion or something in there so i went in there one time i remember and i went to the desk and i got checked in they give you a name badge you tell them who you're here to see um sit down and wait for the person so the person came down to come and see me and then we went in we went through the security barriers and we went in and then you go in like an elevator or a lift takes you all the way up to whatever floor when you get up the floor Doors open, massive views all over London. This is in central London, so you've got like massive views all over the whole uh, of London. And I remember when I'm in the in the uh, meeting room, it's like nothing like 
a bank office or, or, or a bank managers or something like that. It's like a luxury lounge, leather chairs and, you know, carved wood tables and all these things. And I'll never forget, it was really interesting because in the middle of the meeting, come in, open the door, a waiter comes in offering you drinks and beverages. Would you like something to eat? Would you like something to drink? I'm like, this is how the other half are living, yeah? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was very interesting. So, just to kind of see that whole kind of industry and how things are moving and you understand how much real money there is around. You know they say uh, London is the financial capital of the world. So, you understand that there's a lot of money out there and how people are living and how people are moving and how things are going. So, you know, that whole world, is a, that industry is a whole different world to how we're living and things like that. And very interesting as well because I also um, can do trading as well, forex trading. And I've kind of spent quite a bit of time around traders. And it's the same thing with them. They live a very different life to how we live. I mean, when you kind of start understanding how much money there is and how much money is moving around and circulating, it's a completely different lifestyle to what the average person lives. So, um, yeah, a lot of very interesting experiences. Hmm. That's, that's, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. Now, your current passion is, um, you recently founded My, my Black Market. Mm-hmm. So is it the same line with, um, is it the same on the financial market? Or what is it about? Yeah, so it's a bit of everything, really. So one of the things that... Um, what kind of hindered the um, progress of the black bank is within the black um, banking industry, when you're going for your banking license, you have to demonstrate who your target audience is or who you're delivering the bank for. So for me to say that I want to deliver the black bank for the black community, um, you have to have a community in the first place. Do you see what I'm saying? So um, Dr. Claude Anderson, which is um, the founder and pioneer of Powernomics, he did a lecture and he spoke about the difference between having black communities and having black neighborhoods. And what he said is we often don't have communities, we just have neighborhoods, places where we all kind of live and eat together. But we don't have a community because we're not really interconnected. We don't know who's doing what within the community. We don't own, you know, our own shops. We don't own any of our institutions or schools or anything along those lines. So it's not really a community because we're not working as a, like a, a network and integrated system. We just all kind of live in the same area. So for us to say that we have a community to say that I'm going to deliver to this community um, for the bank um, is very difficult for me to demonstrate that. So um, the kind of so my black market is basically a progression of that. So the idea of my black market is for us to start a, a black economy. So um, the idea of that is basically create an integrated network of not only businesses and industries, but also people that will shop with those industries. And, um, you know, so we've been going for since 2014. Um, We've gone to a team now of 16 different people in various different um, areas like designing and marketing and development and things like that. Um, We've gone a database of over 10,000 Black-owned UK businesses. And... um, at the moment, so the idea is that we're building an integrated and interconnected system of these businesses to create a, a network or an economy where we can start keeping our money within our community. Um, what we've noticed is that now that we've collected such a vast database of businesses, that we've noticed how many various different industries that we're in. Um, 
And the only issue is that we don't have that kind of connectivity between all of us to know, okay, this person provides this service or this product, that person provides that service and that product. And when you're talking about, especially when we're talking about Africa, you know, how much stuff comes from Africa, how much raw ingredients, how much product comes to Africa, come from Africa. I mean, it's shocking to know that a lot of the things in Africa, produced in Africa, shipped elsewhere to be uh, manufactured and produced and then sold back to Africa. Like, that is ridiculous and outrageous, you see what I'm saying? So the only real issue is that we don't know and we're not connected with, with each other enough to know that, okay, I've got somebody that lives in Nigeria that produces a certain product. If they produce it, we've got how many businesses over here that will take your product? And we need to do is make that link and that connection and now we can start building out the links of our economy and start trading back and forth and doing various different things. So my black market is essentially an evolution of us creating an economy or what you would call almost like a business community where we can, I'm not saying an economy, it's not just an economy of products, it's not just an economy of services, it's not just an economy of um, skills, it's not just an economy of knowledge, but it's also um, an economy of money. So one of the uh, important things um, of it being an economy of knowledge is we have a lot of knowledge within our, our community and people working in various different industries. And, yeah, and it's just the fact that we, because we're not connected, that information doesn't get shared or passed around and we don't know, okay, there's somebody that we can talk to that has very uh, a lot of insight in a certain industry that will help my business to progress forward and do other things. So it's really about uh, the, the whole idea of an economy. It's really about my back market being a kind of connector or, or serving as a kind of connection between all of our little organizations that we're doing, all of our businesses that we're doing, everything that people are doing and kind of bring it together. So within that, that op um, opens up opportunities for things like finance. As we spoke earlier, once you have an, uh, your own network, you can then determine what is your means of exchange. So if we have our own private network, if I decide that I want, you know, potatoes to be our means of exchange, we can exchange potatoes back and forth because that is what we've agreed on. So when you're talking about setting up a financial institution, we can go down this whole fintech route, or we can go down things like, as I said, um, cryptocurrency, or we can create our own currency, or we can do whatever we want. It gives us the freedom within the space, because when you really look at it, the only real currency is the networking or the working together of people. Whenever you get people cooperating and working together, they decide what flows and what they're exchanging. So all money really is, is something that people will accept for payment. That's all it is. If, just, if we decide tomorrow that rice is going to be a form of payment, then suddenly rice becomes massively expensive because now you know and people um, are going to use rice to spend. It's funny, like, even the Bank of England have said, even the money in England is not worth anything. So I don't know if you know anything about the history of banking, but essentially, to cut a long story short, at one point we used to trade shells, we used to trade, trade feathers, we used to trade precious stones, we used to trade gold, all of these things were money at one point. And yeah. then what happened is it became impractical to carry around all of these things and trade them. So what they did is people started depositing these things into a bank and um, they would get a bank note that says how much money they have or how much value they have deposited in this bank 
and then when they wanted to connect, collect it, they could take this banknote back to the banker, and the bank would know how much of this resource they have or how much money they have, and they could take it out. So what happened over time, people stopped seeing the need to actually go and take it out. And what they would do, they would just trade the banknote to say that, okay, if you want, I've got 10 pounds of gold in the bank. If you want it, take my banknote and you can go and collect it. So people just started trading banknotes instead of collecting the actual money itself. So what then started happening is the bankers started realizing that people are not actually coming to collect this money that's in the bank. All they're doing is trying uh, they're, um, trading with the, the banknotes. So they got smart and realized that because nobody's actually coming to check how much uh, money they have in the bank, they started inflating the bank. So if they only had 10 pounds worth of gold, they could say they had 20 and issue 20 pounds of banknotes. As long as people didn't come all at the same time to take that money, then then um, they would never be found out or nobody would ever, you know, suss them. So that kind of moves forward into what we call like um, fractional reserve currency, where it means that you only have a fraction of the reserves of the banknotes that you have out there. So for instance, however much money you issued um, as a bank, you don't have that full amount actually within the bank. And this is why banks get in trouble when they have bank runs, which is basically when people think the bank is going out of business and they would choose outside the bank to try and get their money all at once. They find problems because the bank doesn't have enough money to cover everybody all at the same time. You see what I'm saying? So we moved away from what we call the gold standard, which is where the money was actually backed by something so I said to now this fractional reserve where it was only partially backed by something valuable to now where we move to what they call fiat currency to where the money isn't backed by anything at all. It's just money. And like the Bank of England have come out and said the only thing that money is worth is basically the confidence of the people. And the only reason why it's valuable is people are confident that when they give it to somebody for a product or service, um, that they will receive that um, service in return. It's only confidence that the shopkeeper or the shop owner, the product service owner, will accept that payment or that money. So if we create our own networks or our own connected thing, we can then decide what we will agree to accept. So if I said, if we agree that we're going to accept Rice's payment, now suddenly within our network, Rice now becomes a form of money. And this is why money and law and finance is very interconnected. Because it's the law that this decides what money is and what is accepted as money and what is accepted as currency. So, um, yeah, us setting up my black market allows us a lot of options in terms of not only the trading and the um, exchange of goods and services, the knowledge side of things, but it also allows us the option in terms of the financial and the payment side of things. It gives us a lot of flexibility of what we want to do and how we're going to control our money and control our economic power as a people. Yeah, that is that is really really explicit. Because I like I like I like how you really broke it down. Money is it's it's whatever we want it to be, regards yeah. how we honor it and the confidence we have between ourselves and the mode of exchange for us. So that yeah. is kind of that is kind of cool. That's kind of cool. The I at the moment we're doing this um I'm organizing a summit for to start a conversation between us diasporans to start having having this conversation of moving back or moving to Africa, um, fifty four countries choose one, and start like, you know, um, I saw a recent survey three hundred billion uh, three hundred billion pounds is what the African um, the African community the African Caribbean community is their buying power every year in the United Kingdom, 
So I was thinking, okay, you know what? Let's start this conversation. 15% of our buying power goes, goes into Africa yearly, which is about 45 billion pounds, goes in there yearly. And we have a community like yours, my black, uh, buy black, uh, my black market. We have these kind of communities whereby the buying power of those communities is being channeled maybe 10, 20, 15%, depends on however you guys want it, will be channeled towards those. Um, oh, my window is open because of the heat, so that is why you hear the vehicles. <laughs> yeah. So, as I was saying, so communities like yours, which is my black, uh, my black market, we start, you know what, let's just choose an African country and start investing directly, direct local investment into the farming, into processing stuff. You know, you mentioned whereby some products, some raw materials from Africa are not actually being manufactured or processed in Africa, but they are taken out of Africa, process it and sell it back to us. Like yeah. um, you are from Ghana, so you know about the cocoa and all those kind of um, shea butter and other stuff. So yeah. organizing, <clears throat> organizing a fund or, or an investment vehicle whereby you say, okay, you know what, let's build a plant. Let's build a process in this, a process in that, in these communities whereby you get all the farmers to bring all their cassava to your processing plant and just process it through there. Bring all your cocoa here and process it through there. So these are the type of conversations that I am just trying, I am actively engaging people like yourself and other, um, other Africans or Caribbeans who are fans of Africa to be like, come on, we should start, we should start looking towards this era. If it's not this year, if it's not next year, but at least within the next five years, let's let's get the boots, let's get more boots on the ground. Because we already have people who've moved to Africa right now, and we need more of them on the ground mm-hmm. to start like creating start building stuff even if it's a micro if it's a micro economy just start building micro 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 and at the end of the day it is a natural project uh, progression that we all we have to connect and we start connecting that is where we determine our own medium of medium of exchange if it's to create a new type of currency whichever way if it's rice, if it's crypto, if it's coconut, if it's whatever it is that we choose. <laughs> so this is, this, is, this is what I am actively pushing right now. So I'm starting this conversation very soon. So, and um, I'm really, really happy that you, you made the move so many years ago, which was very, very pioneering to just like, just to think about setting up your own bank and see how, and just go through the experience because we really need that right now really need those kind of experiences right now. And so when you're speaking now, you're speaking from a place of knowledge, a place of understanding and experience that you've already done, that you've achieved this because you went through the process and you enjoyed your James Bond style, uh, your James Bond style, style meetups. So that's really cool. So... Uh, yeah, I'm going to say, like, I'm just to yeah. kind of touch on what you were saying. I mean... The whole idea of my black market is that because we can index and understand what businesses that we have, we can then understand what those businesses supply needs are. So as you said, like, you know, if we imagine we have, you know, 
throughout the whole of UK, we have maybe 500 businesses that are making some kind of maybe chocolate or they're making, you know, some kind of tea or they're making some kind of beauty products and they need cocoa, we can then go to um, Africa and say, listen, we have already 500 customers that want this product. So let's make a direct connection and a direct link for you to send those products directly to us. Or we can even look at a thing where you can either send the raw product or we can, because we've got so much um, customers, we can even look at, you know, sending an, an advanced payment and setting up a production facility in Africa and then getting them to produce the product there and then they just send over the final product. So um, I think there's a lot of opportunity between um, here and Africa for us to do a lot of development. Um, one of the people that were kind of helping me um, going through like when we were doing a lot of kind of financial stuff and um, setting up for investment and different things with my black market was a, a person by the name of Albert Tucker. So I don't know if you've ever heard of Albert Tucker, but he's the person that founded the Free Trade Coffee Company, I think it is. Um, he also founded a company called Honest Burger, um, which is a, a chain of uh, fast food restaurants over here. And he also um, founded what is called Karma Cola. And what is interesting is he has... Um, very much tapped into his homeland. I forget where he's from. I think it's Sierra Leone it might be he's from. I think maybe. Um, and what he's done, he's made a lot of connection with the farmers and things on the ground there. And he set up a whole industry around the cola bean and doing things around, around cola. So he made sure that he very much into fair trade. So he made sure that he set up um, a situation where all the farmers get treated fairly, they get paid correctly, you know, you've got a lot of things to make sure they've got proper health care and all of those type of things. But all he makes sure as they do is they produce this um, cola bean and, and manufacture it and things like that. And then they send the product over here. So what they, they he does is produce this um, thing called Karma Cola, where it's like organic cola, where they've taken the raw bean and now produce it into a cola, which they sell over here and they sell over in very, very many uh, vast different shops. So there's very um, there's a lot of opportunity for us to do that over here. Um, you know, I, they, they said there's a lot of things that we can be doing between here and Africa and kind of setting it up. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of, there's a YouTube channel called Black Acres of the Gambia. I don't know if you've heard of Black Acres of the Gambia, which is a, a YouTube channel of um, some Americans that have moved to Gambia, bought some land, and they're developing it to basically you know, give a lot of jobs to Gambians and also, you know, do a lot of manufacturing of different products that they can process it and do it there and then they send it out to different um, places around the world. So I think there's a lot of interesting um, opportunities. Even there was a brother that I was kind of, that we was yeah. kind of working with in my black market and he yeah. works for ASOS, which is a clothing company. I don't know if you're aware of ASOS. Yeah, but, um, ASOS. Yeah. So ASOS, he's one of the, he's quite um, high up in ASOS. And what's ironic is he has a sister and his sister is into the production of African garments and African clothes. And what he told me from the industry is that a lot of these people who are producing so-called African clothes and African garments and African prints aren't actually getting their things manufactured in Africa. They're actually getting them manufactured in China. And he was saying, breaking it down, that it's easier for them to manufacture in China because they already have the pipeline for manufacturing. They already have the industry um, set up. 
So what's interesting, even though people are promoting that, yeah, this is African clothing, African wear, and this is black, a lot of it is not actually going back to Africa and supporting um, black. So again, this is another opportunity for us as, as, as my black market to, once we have a, a congregated all of the businesses that may be interested in buying clothing or getting manufacturing done, we can then come as a block of say, we've got a thousand companies that need X amount of uh, garments produced. We can now go to Africa and start building out that pipeline because we have volume and scale. Instead, it's not one one, it becomes very um, expensive, is another thing that he was saying. That because um, China and Asia has a lot of volume, it makes the production costs very low. And because mm -hmm. they, they, the whole pipeline of shipping and everything, they're doing it on bulk, so it makes it uh, very low. Whereas if we're doing it between here and Africa, because it's not a bulk order or bulk production, it increases the prices even more. So one of the things that we can do with My Black Market is gather all of these businesses and go as a bulk um, group of people and saying, listen, we can find a factory or something over there and say, this is what we want. Here's a lot of money up front. Maybe now you can develop out your, your, your processes and also which will make it cheaper. But also when you're shipping in bulk as a, as a, as a group of us sending over goods and products and services, that it will be a lot cheaper because we're now doing a, a massive scale. And now we can start building that industry pipeline between these different countries and these regions and these industries to start establishing these networks that we can kind of move forward and start utilizing. Yeah. Funny how you mentioned, you mentioned Ricky, um, one of the, the, how should I say, the head of um, the Black Acres of the Gambia. Yes, so, you know Ricky, yeah. I know, Ricky. I, know, I know Ricky. I'm having a conversation with him, with him and his wife on, um, on Sunday. So, oh, very nice. Yeah. So we still on yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, no worries. Yeah. Mm. So still on this, still on this um on this movement. So still on this conversation of moving to Africa and taking it as a choice. So that's what we'll be speaking about, me and Ricky and uh, Cynthia, his wife. So yes. yeah, so they will be they'll be on the they'll be on the summit as well, just to have a conversation and just give us some background on how um, how they make up, how they made up their mind to start thinking about Africa as a as a as a home. Okay. So that is very I've, great. I've, I've got a couple of friends that actually moved from here to the Gambia as well, and they set up um, two restaurants. Well, they started set up one first, and it became so successful they uh, they opened up a second one. So they have a restaurant called Mosiah's, and now I think they have a second one called Mosiah Two or something. And they moved, they had, they actually had like businesses over here in the UK. They had like, I think like a shop that was sending very like pro-African gifts, like cards and carvings and like, you know, pro, uh, pro manufactured and produced their own umbrellas and different things like that. And then they just decided, I think they went to Gambia for holiday or something. And then what they were doing, they were moving back and forth. So in the rainy season, they would be over here. And then when rainy season finished, they moved um, back to uh, Gambia. And then after a few years, they was like, you know, they don't even want to come back to England again. So now they're permanently based in Gambia. And I said they're doing very well with their two shops and their, their restaurants. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a viable option to move over there. One of the things that they did say, though, is that there is um, a kind of barrier that they recognize when you're setting up over there. Like, it's not like setting up a business over here. All interesting, one story that they report telling was the fact that they went over there to start a restaurant. And the things that they thought would be difficult, like they were thinking about, oh, customer service and things like that. 
But what they noticed is when they started first getting customers and taking orders, they couldn't really understand the orders. And they're looking at this paper and like, what is this order? We can't understand what it's saying. What is it saying? And what they actually realized is that the people that were working for them couldn't even actually tell the time. So when they was writing down the time in their order, the, the time was saying things that didn't really make sense. <laughs> to, like, they, they didn't understand the 12-hour clock or the 24-hour yeah. clock or yeah. so numbers that don't even exist on the clock and things like that. So it was really interesting. I'm just telling that story that there are things that we're not even comprehending that, mm-hmm. you know, some infrastructure and things that might need to be taught over there yeah. um, that we need to kind of go on. And it's even, you know, with the whole Black Acres of the Gambia thing, when you watch their journey, you watch the kind of difficulties that they have or maybe even, you know, hiring um, skilled service people or even get acquiring certain different products or, you know, <laughs> Black Acres of Gambia is forever breaking down and getting stuck in the mud and different things like that. And just for even to get like a tow truck or trying to get some vehicle service, everything operates very differently over there. So I think it's a very much about, I mean, there's always this question of how much do we acclimatize to countries in Africa and how much do we bring what knowledge and understanding of, you know, our system over here to over there. It's always a, it's a balance for the both, right? So we obviously, we know the pitfalls of our, the system over here and, you know, the, the colonialistic system and everything that we kind of suffered with. But at the same time, we're aware of the efficiency that this country has and things like that. At the same time, when we go to countries in Africa, we're aware that they maybe not have certain efficiencies in certain systems um, and things like that. But also they have, you know, our culture and the way that we like to do business and the way that we like to operate and things like that. So it's about, I think, establishing that balance of the opportunity in this country to have been access to a lot of development. Western countries have had access to a lot of development and development of systems and finance and investment, where Africa hasn't had that. So the question is, what would our vision for Africa really look like? Do we want it to look like England and London? Do we want it to look like America? Or do we want it just to be Africa with more money? Or, you know, where is the balance with that? So that's a very kind of interesting conversation as we have development, as we have people coming from America people coming from the UK, going to Africa and bringing their own kind of ideas and concepts. And you've got to remember, these people have been born and grown in these societies. So they're going to have their own nuances and certain things that are going to be normalized to them and certain food and certain ways of doing things. So, you know, are they wrong? Are they right? Is there some kind of balance there? So this is an interesting conversation and interesting to see um, as the development progresses in Africa. Yeah. Yeah, it's been it's been it's been a wonderful time speaking with you, Daniel. I am really grateful for to like have this conversation with you. Very enlightening, brother. So, and um, an experienced one for that matter. So, I'm really really grateful for having this conversation on the Diaspora Entrepreneurs Podcast. And um, we hope to like have you here again whenever you along your successes. Mm. Well, thank you very much for having me. And on your, your wonderful platform and yeah definitely let me know um i'll be happy to come back again and let me know when you're having your conferences and talks and different things and i'll be happy to chime in and give whatever contribution i can yeah thank you very much speak soon okay so thank you very much for being part of the show we really appreciate you here listen 
we all have ideas and visions of how we see our lives, our enterprise. But without strategic moves, it will remain a pipe dream. As an accountability coach and your success partner, I help and support my clients to build their dream business or their dream lifestyle and make it a reality. So talk to me today, no matter how crazy your your business vision is or how crazy your ideas are, we can build structure to make it a reality. So send me an email or click the link below to talk about your ideas now. It is your dream. It came to you for a reason. So be responsible because the world is waiting for you to act. Thank you. Until next time. This is Victor Osio. Be great.